Welcome, everybody, to the latest episode of the Killer Serials Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Parker. Um, as you may be aware, if you've listened to the last couple of episodes, our co-host, Tony Jones, is on a break working on some other projects. Um, but we decided to use this time to dive into another series that we think is just incredible, uh, must-see TV. It's a Sundance Channel series called Rectify. It's now streaming. Uh, all four seasons are streaming on Netflix. And we are diving into this series through conversations with some Doctorate of Ministry students from Lancaster Theological Seminary. And we are grateful today to have Garrett Bug with us, who is a student. Uh, thanks for joining us, Garrett. Oh, it's great to be here. So tell us a little bit about where you are and what you're getting up to. Well, I'm uh, right now I'm uh, here in Virginia Beach. I serve a, a congregation of about 250 people uh, here, Wycliffe Presbyterian Church. I also uh, run a, 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 a CPE, that's Clinical Pastoral Education uh, Training Site here out of the church. So uh, th- those two things keep me uh, pretty busy, and whatever free time I have is uh, spent with my, my wife and two children. So I've got to say, knowing how busy you are, I'm thankful that you took time to dive into this show and to chat about it for a few minutes. Oh, absolutely. It, uh, it's, it's a great show. It's very, very engrossing. Did you watch it alone or did you watch it with your wife? I, I watched one episode with my wife, but then we realized that uh, that uh, she needed to make sure that the kids were uh, were still asleep. So, and uh, we figured if if we were to watch it all, it would it would have taken uh, much longer than a week to. That's uh, right. To watch. That's watch. right. So, you know, most people I think who um, listen to these podcasts hopefully have watched the show already. So, but and by way of recap, we're talking about Rectify, and we're setting in the context of faith formation in the internet world, which is a course you're taking. And uh, part of what we're trying to get at, it's the first time the course has been offered. And what we're trying to get at is what does faith formation look like in digital and social media spaces? And part of my reasoning behind uh, engaging a series like this is that part of that digital space now is TV. Uh, People are engaging that content in ways that you know, five years ago, they quite frankly, they weren't or not at such a great magnitude. So a, a show like Rectify uh, takes place in a pre-digital, pre-social media time, right? And it's, uh, but it's telling a story that I think we're more aware of now because of social media, right? We're more aware of wrongful detainment. We're more aware of um, overcrowded prisons. We're more aware of problems in our justice system. So in the show, we have the, the main character, Daniel Holden, was uh, convicted of the rape and murder of uh, a teenage girl when he was 18, sentenced to death row where he spent 20 years of his life until new DNA evidence nullified that conviction and resulted in his release from prison. Which kicks off the series, right? Which is a big way to kick off the series. A series right. and, like and very this. captivating at the at the first from the scene. start, right? Yes. So, uh, and releasing back into a small town in Georgia, uh, where everybody knows him and his family. Everybody knows the situation, uh, and it opens this, as I've said before, kind of Pandora's box of conflict, of uh, spiritual themes of. Um, conversations about justice and what is truth. So with kind of laying that groundwork, I'd, I'd like to hear your take on, you know, some of the themes that jumped out at you um, in the series, why the series resonated with you, if it did, or, or in the ways that it did. 
And I'd like to start by something that you said to me um, as we kicked off this conversation, which is you're struck in the series that Daniel's not the only person who uh, was in prison or is still in prison. And I wonder what you meant by that. Right. So by the by the phrase that Daniel isn't the only one stuck in prison, um, of course, as the show begins, Daniel's getting out of prison, uh, but it doesn't take us long to realize that uh, for for a 38-year-old man who spent a majority of his life uh, behind bars uh, on death row, um, essentially in a cell all by himself, you know, surrounded by the, the people on the other walls, that, uh, that it, that's going to have a huge impact and effect on his life. His... Um, the characters that surround him, his family, his uh, his friends, his enemies, uh, all of them, uh, to some degree or another, seem to be um, also stuck, not necessarily in the past, but uh, struggling to make sense out of the present. Um, and the further the series progressed, um, the more I realized that uh, that the the uh, the characters in the show i mean even even someone as as good-hearted and uh, and fiercely um protective of her brother uh, amantha for example is is really uh, is really finds herself imprisoned in the community that they live in uh, in that small georgia town um now i i will say part of part of my experience uh, with that having worked in a, a tiny town in appalachia um is i uh, i spoke with a, a waitress in a restaurant there one time as we were looking out at the mountains that surrounded us. And she actually made the comment that she felt very safe because the mountains were like walls that surrounded her. And, uh, wow. Huh. I heard that and I thought, Oh my God, you're in prison, <laughs> which is part of the reason that this reflection came to my mind. So, you know, I think for, for Amantha, she feels very stuck in that town. Um, and, and in some ways bound by the community that she's in and having to live with the stigma of having a, uh, a brother who's been convicted of, of murder, even though she is quite convinced that he is innocent. Kind of continuing a little bit on that theme as we're, uh, as you're, you're, you're coming into there. You know, I, I think, you know, part of the, part of uh, my understanding about, about Amantha kind of being imprisoned in that town, um, it also has to do with the, the simple fact that I mean the show takes place in the South. All the characters have Southern accents. I'm from the South, so it's a little <laughs> there's there's a lot of truth I think in their portrayal of small town Southern life. Yeah, you're the uh, first person that I've talked to who's actually from the South. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. How did you respond to portrayals of faith, portrayals of all that kind of stuff? Um, the portrayals of faith seem to be uh, pretty accurate. I, I, I find uh, the, really the the faith relationship between uh, between uh, Teddy or Ted Jr. and his wife Tawny to be kind of uh, emblematic of of that in some regards. Where um, she seems to be this, um, you know, she's trying very hard to uh, to be the, the appropriate, proper, good Christian young lady. And uh, that really takes her down some uh, some paths to uh, to to choices that she later regrets. Um, that also means perhaps that she is somewhat uh, somewhat repressed and uh, and simplistic in in her faith. Um, meanwhile, her husband uh, Teddy or Ted Jr. is uh, <laughs> seems to really regard the church as a a good business networking opportunity, and that's about all. Uh, there, I don't see a lot of uh, of uh, faith development in his uh, in his character, uh, at least on the show. Um, 
and uh, probably the line that sort of captured that for me pretty well. It makes me laugh, and I've watched this episode, I think, uh, two or three times now. Um, <laughs> but every time it makes me laugh, and that uh, Ted Jr. has just had taken uh, Daniel out to lunch and then to the golf driving range, and he, he comes back and sits in the car with Tawny, and <laughs> she gets in, and, and he says, he did it. Yeah. She goes, why would you say that? And he goes, why? Well, it's not like I can go down and share my innermost feelings at the Masonic Lodge. Yeah. <laughs> and that, that, that rang true as a uh, you know, part of the, uh, the ethos of a southern town uh, where you have a number of social connections that you can't go any deeper than what is socially expected of you. Well, and more and more along the lines of gender as well, right? Like what uh, are absolutely. men allowed to do that women um, can't do and vice versa, right? Right, right, right. I mean, yes, clearly Tawny's not going to be a Mason. <laughs> so, and that's not, yeah, her, and yeah, so, that space is not as open to her. Yeah. No, it, it, it's not at all. And, and likewise, in some ways, the, the church is less open to him uh, because the, the traditional uh, roles in, the, uh, in, in Southern communities, um, you know, the, the typically husbands and men go out and work, and the women, if they're, if, you know, in the most traditional sense, if they're homemakers, as Tawny is, um, they tend to spend a lot of time at the church. Yeah, and, and they run the place. That that's very true. That's the, often been the tension, at least for me. When, as I you know, going through seminary and and uh, you know, kind of just growing up and realizing, you know, there are whole denominations that don't allow women to be in positions of leadership. And I'm like, but if I look back over my experience as a child in church, all the people that I would have considered leaders were women. Right. Right, right. Even even if they weren't given a particular title, they certainly were there and they were leading, running the show. Yes, quite frankly. Yes, yeah. it is the uh, it is the the queen bee effect. But do you are there things that you pick up on? Um, and I think this this question would probably be better if we did like a panel with some of your other fellow students. But are there things that you pick up on in the show that go unspoken or unsaid because of your experiences growing up in the South? Is there something that, that where you're like, man, they nailed that, and they, and no, nobody else would catch it? Hmm. Thinking back, I, I'm, I'm not. Nothing exactly pops to mind, but I know as I watched, there were a lot of things that were like, this is whether it was the phrases that people spoke, whether it was the, uh, you know, and this was probably something that that may be more of a um, a, a stereotypical thing, but. Uh, it almost reminds me a little bit of watching the uh, the Dukes of Hazard. You know, you got the you got the sheriff and his cronies sitting around in a room planning, <laughs> essentially right. what's going to be legal and illegal. And that, uh, you know, it, if that's stereotypical of the South, um, you know, certainly to me, that it, it has that stereotypical feel, but it also may have a ring of truth to it. Um, but it, you know, as, as the smaller things were typically turns of phrase that people uh, people would say. Um, it just it really made me uh, made me think back to the small town that I grew up in in the South, and uh, um, and and people that I've known really all throughout my life. You and our conversation before our brief conversation before we started recording, you talked about episode two really resonating with uh, you, or you being really intrigued by it and some of the issues that it raised. And I wonder if you could could talk a little bit about those. Yes, well, the uh, the second episode of the series, uh, which was titled uh, 
uh, intriguingly titled uh, Sexual Peeling. And it, it really has a lot to do. Um, so, obviously, what's clearly one of the part? main points. What is that peeling part for you? I, I'm still uh, trying that, to wrap my head around that. Yeah, I, I'm not. Uh, I've 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 thought about it. I checked all the uh, sources I could think of, like uh, you know, thinking maybe this was uh, some you know super uh, contemporary phrase that I didn't know, uh, but Urban Dictionary had nothing. Um, <laughs> I, I think part <laughs> of next what next level it means, research. Exactly. Uh, part of part part of what it means. I almost think of it a little bit like an onion. You know, to get to the core of uh, to get to the core of who someone is, um, it involves peeling back. Essentially, all of the all of the outer pieces, and uh, in some ways, I think sexuality is one of those outer pieces. But it is much closer to the core of who we are because of our our um, our commitments to keep uh, to keep you know most sexual things private. Um, so, I, what what I found interesting there is, is in that episode is it uh, as we saw the various ways that. Um, that the different characters um, engaged in, uh, in in acts of intimacy um, was really that some some of the acts of intimacy were not at all intimate. Um, some of them were very transactional, uh, con- particularly between the senator and the waitress yeah. as they continue their affair. Some of them were uh, were you know eerily devoid of emotion, uh, such as the between uh, Ted and uh, and Tawny. Not so much on on. Uh, Ted Jr.'s part, but uh, Tawny's part. Um, other, others, you know, Amantha and uh, and the lawyer uh, John uh, Stern. You know, they uh, they were uh, so excited to see each other. They didn't close the blinds in the hotel room, and someone walked in and saw him. So, <laughs> you know, I mean, all along the all along the uh, the development of that particular. Um, show we're getting a little window and a, a little deeper look into who these people are, um, and uh, so on, on. On the very positive note, for example, with uh, with with Ted Jr. I mean, clearly he, uh, you know, as a as a, a Southern uh, you know Christian husband. I mean, his desire is is for his wife, um, and and later in a, in a episode later in the series we. Uh, we, we see that to be true as he's at a convention and basically turns down uh, offers from other women. I was uh, going to admit I was a little surprised that he turned down those offers. Yeah, I, I, I was too. I, I I thought I had him pegged, but uh, but I didn't. <laughs> uh, and you know I I think he really wants to do right by her, um, but he is frustrated. But, but he is incredibly frustrated, and and whether it's uh, whether it's her own. Um, her own upbringing or mores that keeps her from being able to uh, to join him in that uh, in that moment, or if it's his demeanor that puts her off, I don't know. <laughs> I wonder uh, if I, I mentioned this with Coley in a previous conversation. I wonder what you'd make of it. What do you what do you think about Tawny? She seems to be a really complex character, and I think um, that's a strength of the show is that. There are very few stereotypical in a in a community and a setting that is often highly stereo stereotyped in mm. film and TV. The South, um, Tawny is there's that reservation about her around Teddy Jr. seems to hint at something. And again, we've I've said this every um, episode about the show. I've not watched further ahead. I'm assuming you haven't either. Um, so I think there's a lot to her backstory that is. Is very mysterious. 
There is. There is. You know, it, it's um, she also is one of those that you know. At first, I was like, okay, it, <laughs> I, I I thought um, that she was simply going to uh, to either be the, the the truly the simpleton or the the kind of the fool of the show, but that's that's not accurate to who she is, and uh, and in her. In what appears to be simplicity, there is a depth and a desire for uh, for deep. Uh, really, I, I would say a desire for a very deep connection. Um, oddly, she seems to find that with Daniel more so than with with Ted Junior. At least for the moment, right? Right, right, and uh, and that's uh, both alarming, um, but also uh, the way that she is able to approach him not as the vindicated criminal, or not as the uh, not as the uh, the wrongly uh, released criminal, but simply as a human being, I thought was actually rather refreshing. As she uh, she approached him again, back to episode two, as she approached him at that party, uh, and they had a talk about the weather, and he disclosed to her that you know for twenty years he had no idea whether the sun was shining or it was raining because the unbelievable yeah the walls were so thick he could not hear the. Uh, the weather, yeah. Let alone see. You bring up something about Tawny that Marjorie and I touched on in our conversation, which is um, the ability or the call that we have on our lives. I think as people of faith, to the the real challenge and the real gift is to view other people as children of God, right? Mm-hmm. And Tawny seems to be able to do that. Um, I think it's shaped or influenced or um, kind of dampened by Teddy Jr., but I still think she has the innate ability to do that. And she, counter to the senator, for example, counter to the justice system, those those people can't look at other people as human beings or, quote-unquote, children of God because our that system won't allow it. And I think that's the challenge of, of faith to the politics and policies of the world is that we're called to look deeper like Tawny wants to do. Right. Well, yeah, exactly. Because being a child of God gains you no standing in those systems. Yeah. <laughs> there, there, that, there, that's a category that doesn't exist there. It's, uh, um, but, but certainly Tawny brings that element back into, back into play in, in the series. And, and it does, uh, it, I think at its best for, uh, for, for um, followers of Jesus Christ who watch the show, yes, there is a an important uh, element to to recognizing our our common humanity, even among the most unsavory people. Um, he, and Daniel is not necessarily unsavory, but right. yeah, but certainly in that town, I think uh, if you ask the the public in that town, there would be a, a sense that he was. Because as Daniel has his flashbacks to his time back in prison and uh, and remembers what it was like to be in that cell for that long, uh, we get to know a couple of other characters pretty well. We, we've <laughs> he's got a, he's got an inmate on his left and his right, and um, <laughs> and the one on his right is a, is a, a man named Kerwin, at least as I'm. Yep. Looking at the overhead view they put in the show, yep. uh, Kerwin, who becomes a very good friend and essentially part of his uh, part of his survival mechanism when he's in prison. Uh, on the left is a, uh, uh, I would say, probably a truly unsavory character who uh, 
who is in, in on death row, also for rape and murder. Uh, but it's pretty clear that he claims responsibility for what he did. Um, and but both of both of them relate to Daniel in a way that helps Daniel to keep a little bit of his uh, of his humanity intact. Not a lot. But a little bit. There's something. There's something about that in it that's quite powerful. That our humanity is in our opportunity, in the opportunity and ability that we have to connect with other people. Right. Even through even through concrete walls and small steel grates. It's funny the way that you bring up that positioning, and I hadn't thought about it before. That, and also to, you know, maybe be a little cheesy, but they really do function as like an angel and a devil on his shoulder, right? Kerwin seems to be trying to call out the best or foster the best in. Daniel mm-hmm. and the, I think his name's Wells or Walls, the guy that's in, in the other cell, right. is, ju- is just not, quite frankly. I mean, he is antagonistic. He is, um, like you say, he's a bit more unsavory character. And, you know, those continue to, I think, and this is going to help us lead into another theme that, um, that you talked about before, but he continues to have conversations with those people in his head, even after he's out of prison. Absolutely. He, uh, he, he does. And, you know, as I was, as I was describing that scene just a moment ago, part of, part of the image that popped into my head, which I know may be a bit of a stretch, but is actually the, uh, <laughs> is the crucifixion scene with the, uh, the one prisoner saying, you know, if you're, if you're so great, you know, save yourself. And the other one saying, you know, um, you know, you yeah. are the king of the Jews. You know, <laughs> I don't think that's a stretch me? at all. I think that's um, an interesting um, comparison. And and that uh, just the the simple composition, as you say, of that scene, you know, does uh, does lend itself to uh, to hearing it that way. Um, certainly, Wells is a bit more uh, antagonistic, as you say. It's uh, he's. Uh, Egging Daniel on essentially for all the wrong reasons, and uh, and Kerwin though, at, at, towards the end of the first season, Kerwin actually on his uh, his way to uh, um, uh, to the to the death chamber, um, basically says to Daniel something to the essentially words of absolution in a way. Uh, I, I know you didn't do it, and you will get out, or something like that. I admit, and I don't care. I cried like a baby. At that scene, I right? Mean, I, that, yes, <laughs> I thought it was one of the most most remarkable exchanges I've. And I watch a lot of TV, and I think it is it, it's just fantastic. And I right. hope that we get to see more of Kerwin in future seasons. I hope that these flashbacks and stuff we get to to learn more about him as a character. Um, I mm-hmm. want to talk. I want to talk to you about a, a you know as we've talked about the show offline. Um, some of the students or a lot of people responded to the goat man as we called him. And I think it's an interesting episode. Um, I think some people are kind of scratching a little deeper, digging a little deeper with him to talk about issues of truth and reality. And I think that the series does a good job of showing what Daniel is experiencing out of prison, which is PTSD, right? Mm-hmm. That these, it's a traumatic experience for him and these in the memories of it break into his life in unexpected times. And often they take the form of, of nice conversations with Kerwin or of traumatic experiences of watching a, a fellow inmate bang his head on a door or of a violent conflict with another inmate. I wonder, 
what you make of those. You're a chaplain, right? You've done chaplain work. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder what you make about the show's um, portrayal of trauma, of of experiences that may or may not be happening but are still true to the person experiencing them uh, and things like that. Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, as we... As as we see the experiences that Daniel relives, um, we're, we're we're being invited to uh, to uh, relive with him a little bit of that of that trauma, and you know I think uh, all of those those uh, things really do reach a um, reach a pretty a pretty critical uh, level. Um, and as Daniel struggles to uh, to make any kind of meaningful connection outside the walls of that prison, outside of his his one true friend who's been put to death, he uh, he eventually gets to the point where it becomes too much. The uh, the, the freedom is too much, um, and the the reliving of the experiences in prison is is one symbol of that. The uh, the goat man is another, and. I mean, I, I found that that goat man somewhat uh, somewhat fascinating because I think it further confuses the uh, the the issues of essentially of good and evil that that appear throughout the show. What we think is good is not necessarily all that good, and what we think is evil, we tend to be surprised that it's not what we thought. Um, and uh, the uh, the the man who came and stole the goats. It it leads me to wonder. Just having watched the uh, the first season, is that uh, is that man and all of its uh, unreality? Uh, is he a symbol of uh, of the the evils of the trauma um, coming to sort of run away with Daniel, or is the uh, is the goat man actually taking? <laughs> taking out the uh, essentially stealing the evil goats and taking them somewhere else. I um, it, it's hard for me to uh, <laughs> to say which one of those I I uh, yeah I believe more. But so you know I well you're hinting at the I mean you're not hinting at you're you're wrestling with that ambiguity. But you probably also know um, better than. Some of your classmates having you know grown up in the South that I can think back on plenty of goat men that I knew in my life oh and and i I guess my my judgment about the reality of that scene is really that you know the guy throws him a wad of money, which he ends up having later on, yeah, and uh, no one knows how he got it, so yeah I, maybe I've missed something else earlier in the uh, earlier in the first episode, <laughs> maybe they gave him that money way back when, but uh, no, I think you're right, I mean I think for you know, I, I, for me, I always took that as a real moment, but I think it's, it, it, there's, there's no mistaking that it's there for deeper, I would say spiritual, uh, mm-hmm. religious, psychological purposes that, you know, there's so much dialogue in there. Um, and there's so much about the, their conversation with one another and what they do together that right. has, that echoes, has so many scriptural echoes that I think that that scene would be lost on the full meaning of that experience is lost on a lot of viewers, I would imagine. Right. Right. When Daniel says, are you going to run him off a cliff? 
right? Right. Or exactly. they're, they're wrestling. Uh, they're wrestling in this forest. And I think one of the things that uh, might be lost on many viewers, and I think it's even lost on me to some extent. Although I've done, I've thought about what it would be like to have a uh, to work on a book or, or a series of essays around um, PTSD and film and television. And the way that those episodes are able, or the way film and TV can, through editing, can capture what it might be like to wrestle with those experiences. And so I wonder if you had any other thoughts about um, that notion of PTSD in, in a show like Rectify. I think Rectify is a, is a very good example of how to explore PTSD in a, in a somewhat safe way and get out, get out that conversation uh, to a wider range of uh, to a wider audience. Um, I, I also, I, I think that again, you know, as it is true that, uh, that Daniel is, is suffering from the, uh, the, the trauma of being in prison. I, again, I think all of his, uh, all of the, the constellation of, of people that surround him, they're, they're also dealing with, uh, with their own, um, uh, post-traumatic stress from both from the original event and now from his release, um, so I, I'm I'm constantly uh, surprised as I as I watch the show at, at how uh, at how that's uh, approached. I mean, obviously you've got these uh, flashbacks and um, really uh, re- recurrent images that Daniel has, and while we don't see that from the other folks in the show necessarily, they talk about it. Um, or they, they I, maybe I'm reading into them, but I think they, uh, I think they, they also are displaying the, uh, the, uh, the stresses of uh, of dealing with with trauma. One thing about Daniel that I, at least in the first season, that I think is um, maybe a positive for him is that he's not um, necessarily avoidant of a lot of the the. The external stimuli around uh, around his release, and some of that may be because he is kind of in a daze and doesn't know, you know, up from down exactly, uh, since most of his life was spent in prison. Right. Um, but he does uh, he does sort of constantly want to reengage, and there's a timidness to him about actually being able to make a meaningful connection because it's uh, it's so hard. In the in the in the in the freedom of the world, which is uh, overwhelming uh, to his uh, to his life, I actually um, I went back and looked. I don't know if if you've ever read. I'm sure you have the uh, that Stanford uh, prison experiment from way back in 1970 71. Oh yeah, I've, I've uh read that also there's an interesting film that I think is either on Netflix or certainly you can get on iTunes. That's a, mm-hmm. it's a a feature film, a narrative, but it's and it's based on that. It's fascinating stuff. Well, the it is, and what what I found really uh, interesting is I I went back to to look at that. I mean, part of what they, uh, part of uh, part of that experiment. I mean, they discovered that basically the more uh, the more violent uh, the guards were, the more compliant the prisoners were. <laughs> and and of course, as I read that, I, you know, my mind goes back to the the show and uh, and. Seeing how that plays out in Rectify, and how uh, essentially how the guards treated Daniel, and how he comes out being very uh, essentially very compliant, or 
mostly compliant. Um, right. But one of the one of the things that actually at the the end of that uh, one of the write ups of that study uh, that Philip Zimbardo did uh, about 1973 is that uh, you know he he made the uh, the statement that the physical institution of prison is a uh, is a concrete and steel metaphor for the existence of a more pervasive though less obvious prison of the mind that all of us daily create. Mm. And uh, that that rang true for me, uh, having watched this show. Um, that there are a lot of uh, a lot of uh, metaphorical, uh, or or maybe real prisons that don't have uh, steel and and concrete in right. them. Well, speaking of of prisons, I wonder if how this. Well, first off, I've asked all of your classmates this, but mm-hmm. how. How did you think about that notion of prison and, and maybe specifically like our actual prison and justice systems in this country before watching the show? And has this show shaped the way you think about that? Um, and if not, that's you know obviously fine. And if so, maybe how that's happened for you. Well, I, the show is affected in, in this. It's reminded me uh, something that I, I learned when I, when I was in college. I went and did, uh, I was part of the, the Philip Glass Weekend of Champions. I don't know if you've ever heard of that with uh, no, Campus Crusade yeah. Christ. Okay, uh, and so we went to a to a prison in uh, in North Carolina, and uh, yeah, ostensibly to to share the gospel with the prisoners. Um, but really, what it, what I I remember from that experience was well, a couple things. One, the the sense of both being very very watched, and uh, you know, in a in a very secure environment, but not being very safe because the people around me were <laughs> were uh, you know convicted of various crimes. Although we were instructed not to ask them why they were there. Right. Um, but um, but then secondly. The people that I talked to, uh, the prisoners there that I spoke with, you were, they were people, I mean, and they, you know, they have done some some heinous things. Um, but again, it, it comes back to that common humanity, um, which I think sometimes does get lost in our our justice system. Yeah. Um, the the other side of that is having had a lot of uh, a lot of experience with. Um, with lawyers in the in the congregations that I've served, is uh, th- there is a a sense of, you know, in in the legal system, there's kind of a cut and dry. It's always either guilty or not guilty, and yet there are multiple shades of gray everywhere you look. So there's which a there's a tension. A, yeah, which I think is a good part of the show is that um, you know, whole uh, Daniel may be innocent of her of Hannah's rape and murder, but he's not all the way innocent. Right. 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 Yeah. He, yeah, he, there, there's something there, but we're just not sure exactly what yet. Um, and you know, that's, uh, so, so I think those things are, are, are helpful to, uh, to think about, uh, or at least they've been helpful for me to kind of consider those experiences as I watched the, uh, as I watched the show. Um, and, it it also reminds me of the, a number of uh, of uh, news stories from around here in Virginia, relatively recently in the past few years about inmates who have been exonerated because of DNA evidence that's come out years after they've been in prison. Um, right, and uh, and what that means for their life is uh, is pretty shocking. And what you see, and what you see in the series too, with there's still the suspicion of 
and what it takes place, I think, allows the um, the writers to do this. But this the suspicion of DNA, right? Like, yes, uh, can we really trust this? You know, is this enough to overturn a conviction and and things like that? Mm-hmm. So, for your last question, uh, for the last question. You, you brought up people in your congregations um, and the way that you think about conversations about that. Is this a series that you would share with your faith community or your faith colleagues? I would. Uh, well, I would. I would definitely share it with uh, with my faith colleagues. I think um, in in this particular faith community that I serve now. It, it may be almost too challenging uh, for some of the folks, um, but then again, it may be it may be worth the watch. Um, I one of the things I wonder about um, when uh, whenever I I uh, have a, a show like this that takes place maybe a little closer to home than people would like. Um, it reminds me years ago I, when I was out in Kentucky. Um, the uh, History Channel did a special on the uh, the Hatfields and the McCoys, and uh, so there was all this big hoopla that it was going to come out, and we were all excited. And so, on the the night of its debut, everyone uh, I think was watched it in their own homes, and that was wonderful. So I figured, well, maybe we'll have a chance to talk about it. <laughs> it wasn't uh, it wasn't hardly an hour later when the st- calls started coming in and <laughs> Facebook messages and everything about how they got it wrong, and we're not like that, and. <laughs> Our people aren't like that. I was like, "Oh, wow! <laughs> there's a there's really a strong touch the nerve, did we? Cultural connection that can really uh, can really kind of uh, <laughs> yeah. can really touch a nerve, as you say. <laughs> uh, so, so I think that may be one of the challenges uh, to showing that here, um, and not that that's an insurmountable challenge. I just uh, I think it's helpful for me to be aware of it before uh, before engaging uh, the the actual faith community and. In watching the show, the other, the other side to that too is that I mean some of the, some of the uh, the, particularly for our older members, I think the uh, some of the the violence and the sex scenes might be a little more than they would uh, want to watch uh, at church. Well, that's a good point too, and you bring up, but you bring up a, I think a more salient point too, which is we often don't want to watch things that we deep down know we're complicit in and don't want to talk about them, you know. Um, oh yes, and so for this for a series like this, it's we live in a culture that uh, that first off uh, in many places practices the death penalty, and in many mm-hmm. instances sends people to the death chamber that don't belong there. Right. Yeah. Right, and that and that is this. That's hard to uh, that's hard to watch, and you know, in uh, it, you know, just looking at recent history here in Virginia, just uh, you know, just this past August. Um, we had uh, over in Charlottesville with the uh, uh, the the white supremacy rally. Um, that was uh, much too close for comfort. And uh, while, while I think the the congregation was was really uniformly disgusted by what they saw, it uh, it's hard to see that in your own backyard and realize that there are uh, there there are people that uh, that we could have known or people at a different uh, at a different stage of their life very people even from the pews in this church could have been there yeah that's 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 the real that's real life (laughs) right right well garrett i want to thank you for taking the time to watch the show Uh, i know you are extremely busy and i want to thank you for taking the time to chat about it and 
I hope it's something that um, that you can share with your faith colleagues because it it feels like this was a kind of an under the radar show and. Um, I think it's one that we can revisit. I think it's one that because it has this uh, extended shelf life on Netflix, it's mm-hmm. an opportunity for our for our fellow faith leaders to to explore some of these themes, some of these themes, and maybe share it in appropriate settings with other people. Um, so, thanks for being here and highlighting some of those important notes for us. Well, thank you for hosting me today, Ryan. It's been a been a pleasure to be with you. Yeah, thanks. And thanks, everybody, for listening to the latest episode of Killer Serials. We'll be back uh, again soon with more good conversation around great TV. Thanks. Mm-hmm.